Thanks, Linda. It'd be great if you keep that open. Uh, let's pray again for God's help as we look at it together. Father, we do thank you for your word to us, and we pray now, Lord, that as we look at it together, our minds might be free of distraction, that you might help us by your spirit to listen carefully to your word, and not just listen, Lord, but to live in light of what we read. You'd help us to grow, not just in our knowledge, but our love of you, as we too wait patiently for that great and glorious day. So teach us and change us, we ask for Jesus' sake. Amen. Well, here's a question that you've uh, maybe asked yourself at some point, or if not, uh, someone no doubt has asked you. Why doesn't God do something? Why doesn't God do something about the suffering in this world? You see, we live in a world that is so deeply broken by sin. There is so much injustice, so much pain, so much sadness, so much evil, so much suffering, and so much sorrow. The tears that are shed in this world are so very real, which prompts many to ask the question that you can see up there on the screen. Why doesn't God do something about it? Well, the answer that God gives in the Bible to that question is threefold. Firstly, God has done something. Why doesn't God do something about it? Firstly, God has done something. And He's done something quite remarkable in giving His only Son, Jesus, into this world to lay down His life on the cross, to take away our sin, and to open up the way into a world that is free from suffering. God has done something in Jesus already. But secondly, God is doing something. Not only has he done something, he is doing something. We saw that then we back in chapter 1, where James begins his letter. Look back, if you would, verse 2 and 3. Consider it pure joy, my brothers and sisters, when you face trials of many kinds. Why? Because you know that the testing of your faith produces perseverance. You see, if you're a Christian here this morning, God is at work in your hearts right now, strengthening your faith, making you mature and complete and more like the Lord Jesus. Which is why James encourages us to look beyond the trials of life, to see what God is doing in our hearts as he shapes us into the likeness of Christ through them. God has done something, God is doing something, and lastly, our focus for this morning, God will do something. He will do something when Jesus comes again. In fact, three times in that little section that's just been read to us, three times James draws our attention, he draws our gaze to the return of Jesus. Verse 7, until the Lord's coming is near. Verse 8, the Lord's coming is near. Verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. Now the point that James is making is actually pretty simple. And if you take nothing else away with you this morning, then please take this one simple, profound, yet eternity-changing truth that Jesus is coming back. If you take nothing else, know this, Jesus is coming back. And on that day, when Jesus returns from heaven in glory, God will wipe away every tear from our eye. No more death or mourning or crying or sadness or pain, for the old order of things has passed away. 
That's the order in which we live. And it's an order with which we are so familiar in this broken world. We are so well acquainted with the troubles of this world. But John in his vision sees a day when that old order will be rolled up like a scroll and thrown away. And God will bring into being a whole new created order. It's hard to imagine, isn't it? But one day suffering will be no more. That is a message that our world today, that we today need to hear. But it's a message as well that these early Christians also needed to hear because their lives, as we've seen already, were so full of trouble. Not only they've been dispersed from their homeland because of persecution in Jerusalem, but now in the places where they ended up, they're being exploited by these wealthy landowners. We thought about that last week, didn't we? What will happen to the greedy rich who are trampling all over the, the, the vulnerable poor to get what they want because they love money more than Jesus? And last week, James focused and, and he challenged the, the wealthy who were trampling on the poor. But this week, James turns his attention to those who are facing those injustices. Those who are suffering at the hands of others. And so the question now is how will these troubled Christians respond in the face of such injustice? Or if we were to, to broaden that question out for our own benefit this morning, how should Christians in general respond to suffering, persecution, hardship, and injustice? Well, James, I think, gives us four instructions here to think about. You've heard three of them already. Firstly, be patient, verse 7. Be patient then, brothers and sisters, until the Lord's coming. Now, James isn't just talking about waiting generally. He's talking about what it looks like to wait when life is really hard. When it's really hard. And if you want to know what that looks like, James says, well, just check out the farmer. You see that again in verse 7? See how the farmer waits for the land to yield its valuable crops, patiently waiting for the autumn and the spring rains. You see, the farmer's dug up the ground and, and he's laid his seed and there's almost nothing more he can do but wait. To wait for the rains to come. First the autumn rains and, and then the spring rains. Then wait for the crops to grow. But he's got an awful long time to wait. But of course, the day will finally arrive, won't it? When Mr. Farmer pulls back his curtains one morning and he looks out the window and he smiles the biggest smile because the waiting is over. And the harvest has come. And boy, it was worth the wait, wasn't it? So too will it be for the Christian, says James. The day will come when the waiting is over. When Jesus returns from heaven in glory. And on that day, all wrongs will be righted. Perfect justice will be administered. And the troubles of this life will be no more. You see, the farmer waits patiently because he knows that the harvest is coming. And in a similar way, the Christian waits patiently because he knows that the Lord is coming. As Douglas Moo says in his commentary, appropriate name for a farming metaphor, Douglas Moo, as the farmer waits patiently for the seed to sprout and the crops to mature, believers must wait patiently. For the Lord to return to deliver them 
and to judge their oppressors. And while they wait, here's the key bit, while they wait, they need to stand firm. They need to stand firm. And that brings us to our second instruction this morning. Not only do we need to wait patiently for the Lord to come again, but as we wait, we need to stand firm in the face of adversity. You too, says James. Just like the farmer, you too be patient and stand firm. Why? Because the Lord's coming is near. You see, there's a real danger that as Christians, we grow weary and we lose heart. Like that boxer in the ring. He just feels like he's been pummeled from all directions and the, the hardships of life, they just come in from every single direction. It's like he's on his knees and he's at the point of saying, I'm going to throw the towel in. I just can't take it. It's too much. Enough is enough. And he's at the point of throwing the towel in and jacking it in altogether. And James says, stand firm. That's why the call comes because James knows how tough it can be under hardship and persecution. Be patient and stand firm. And James goes on, doesn't he, to give two examples of what it looks like to stand firm. Can you see that? Firstly, he gives us the example of the prophets in verse 10. Brothers and sisters, as an example of patience in the face of suffering, take the prophets. Take the prophets as an example who spoke in the name of the Lord. So many, of course, that we could mention. But to name but a few, Elijah, who was ruthlessly hunted by King Ahab. Jeremiah thrown down a well. Ezekiel lost his life, or lost his wife, sorry, during his ministry. Daniel, of course, thrown into the lion's den. Hosea endured a heartbreaking marriage where his wife was caught up in numerous adulterous relationships. And John the Baptist was imprisoned before eventually being beheaded because of his testimony to the truth. And those are just a few of the headlines. So if you want to know what it looks like to stand firm in the face of adversity, look to the prophet, says James, whose lives have been incredibly hard, yet at the same time, look at verse 11, they're also incredibly blessed. And they are blessed because of that glorious future that is waiting for them. And it is that same glorious future that is waiting for us. And so maybe next time you read through one of the prophets, don't just listen to what they say, do listen to what they say. But also think about how they were. Think about what it cost them to be faithful to Jesus. See how they stood firm in the face of very real opposition, and pray, pray that the Lord, by His grace, may give us something of that same patience and perseverance. Firstly, stand firm like the prophets. There's a second example, isn't there, that James uses? Stand firm like Job. Can you see that verse 11? You've heard of Job's perseverance and have seen what the Lord finally brought about after all those years that Job went through of suffering, what the Lord has finally brought about. The Lord is full of compassion and mercy. Now, for those of you who've read the book of Job, you'll know that at the beginning of the story, Job was incredibly blessed, wasn't he? He had so much going for him. But almost everything that he had was taken away. His livelihood, his work, 
But not only his stuff, his family, his sons and his daughters were taken from him. It must have been so, so hard for Job to comprehend what was going on. All this loss that came upon him. To come to terms with that loss that he was going through. But look how Job responded. This is verse 20 to 22 of Job chapter 1. All this was taken away from Job. At this, Job got up and tore his robe and shaved his head. Then he fell to the ground in worship and said, Naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked I will depart. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. May the name of the Lord be praised. In all this, Job did not sin by charging God with wrongdoing. It's remarkable, isn't it? He didn't grumble against God. He didn't question God's goodness. He trusted in God's sovereignty and he stood firm in the face of suffering. And just in case you don't know how the story ends, I'm not going to keep you in suspense. It ends in abundant blessing. The end of Job is a picture of abundant blessing. And in many ways, the journey that Job goes on is a pattern for us all. However difficult life is, however difficult things may get for you in life, faithfulness to God will be rewarded in the end when Jesus comes again. Firstly, be patient as you wait for the Lord to come. Secondly, stand firm. Stand firm in what you believe in the gospel, what you know to be true about Christ and what that means for eternity. And thirdly, don't grumble. Verse 9, don't grumble against one another, brothers and sisters, or you will be judged. The judge is standing at the door. It's easy to grumble, isn't it, when things go against you? Whether that grumbling is directed towards God or whether that grumbling is directed towards other people, maybe even those that are involved in the hardships that you're facing. And what you often find is, don't you, that it's those closest to you who experience the, the worst of your grumbling. But James says, don't grumble. And the reason he gives there is, look in verse 9, don't grumble against one another. Why? Or you will be judged. You see, the future judgment of God should impact the way that we live today. You see, the Bible is crystal clear that every single person that has been will stand before God on that final day. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 10. We must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, Christian and non-Christian alike. Of course, it will look very different, won't it? On that day, for those who believe and for those who don't. For those who are yet to trust in Christ, they will stand before God without a Savior, and that will be a terrible day. For those who trust Jesus, they will know that their sins are forgiven and they will enter that, that glorious world to come. Nevertheless, judgment is very real for us all. And it should impact, that day that is coming should impact the way that we live now. And the way that we respond, in fact, to life's trials now. And you can see how imminent that day is, can't you? In verse 9, the judge is standing at the door. James wants us to understand how near this day is. He's not just getting out of the car. He's not just walking up the drive. He's stood at the door. 
And Jesus, any moment, will open that door and He will come back into this world for the final time. And Jesus will wrap up all history on that final day. Therefore, James says, don't grumble. Be thankful in your hearts, even when life is tough. Let thankfulness arise within your hearts because of what Christ has done and because of what awaits you in eternity. Be patient, stand firm, don't grumble, and lastly, don't swear, verse 12. Above all, my brothers and sisters, do not swear, not by heaven or by earth or by anything else. All you need to say is a simple yes or no, otherwise you'll be condemned. Now when James says don't sway, he's not talking about dirty language, he's talking here about dodgy promises. For example, when I was at school, I'm not sure this saying still goes around, but if people really wanted you to believe something, they'd say, I swear, and I swear on my mum's life, I swear it's true. They'd sort of up the ante by what they were saying by putting someone else's name to it because they wanted you to believe and they would swear on something greater than themselves, which is a horrible thing really to say, isn't it? James says we don't need to swear by heaven or earth. We don't need to swear on anybody's life. We just need to be good to our word. Let your yes be yes and your no be no. So if someone says to you, do you know, do you promise to and whatever it might be? You don't need to give a little pinky promise to them or, or, or swear by something else. You just need to say a simple yes or no. Just be good to your word, says James, verse 12. The bigger question, I think, though, is this. Why does James say this here? Why does he talk about our promises and not promising by those things and just being good to our word at this particular point here when it comes to waiting patiently for the Lord. Well, here's my thoughts on what it's worth. It seems likely to me that some of those suffering Christians who are in view here in this chapter were trying to negotiate with God. Maybe saying things like, you know, if you get me out of this hole, if you take away this suffering, if you just take away what I'm going through, God, I'll give you everything. I swear, I swear you'll have my whole life then. If you just sort my life out now, you'll have everything. If you do this for me, I'll do this for you. But God doesn't want us to make promises like that. He just wants us to trust Him. Whatever comes our way in life, however difficult things may be or may get, God just wants us to be patient and to wait for that day. He wants us to stand firm in Christ on the rock of our salvation. And He wants us to trust Him that one day soon He will deliver us from our troubles into His glorious new creation. Which brings us full circle, doesn't it? Why doesn't God do something about the suffering in this world? Well, the answer is threefold. God has, hasn't He? God sent His Son Jesus into this world to suffer immeasurably more than you can ever imagine, immeasurably more than you ever will, and He suffered in your place so that one day you need not suffer anymore. God's already done that. That is a concrete reality in history, and God is doing something. If you're a Christian here this morning, God in His sovereign grace is making you more like Jesus. And the trials of life that He takes us through are all part of that shaping and refining work 
in our hearts. And lastly, God will do something. He'll do something quite stunning when Jesus returns again. And what a day that will be. What a day that will be for those who know him and for those who love him. So as we close, let me finish with those words on the screen. Words of the Apostle Paul, therefore we do not lose heart. We don't throw the towel in like the boxer in the ring. However difficult things may be, though outwardly we are wasting away, our bodies are failing, yet inwardly we are being renewed day by day for our light and momentary troubles. And that is what they are actually. They may not feel like that right now, but in the context of eternity, all of our troubles are light and momentary and they are achieving for us an eternal glory that far outweighs them all. So let me give you a moment just to to read those words and to reflect on what Christ has done, what Christ is doing, and what Christ will do when he comes again. And then we're going to sing two songs, the first of which we'll stay seated for. It's a newer song, but it looks forward to on that day, on that day when Jesus comes and what it means for us. So just a moment to reflect, and then the band will come and lead us as we close.